something I read where you talked about your people from Mount Vernon saying that, you know, like they've done like 40 years in a penitentiary together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, incarceration rates in America has been a problem, especially as, as opposing minorities. And Roman delves into this, the, the issues around the, the legal system. Do you think we've made any headway? In the I think it's more important to make headway in our own house. By the time the system comes into play, the damage is done. They're not locking up seven-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was in Chicago a couple of three, four weeks ago, and we saw these little kids on bikes with masks on the side of their head, like five or six of them. And the driver said, yeah, they're little yummies. I said, who? He said, little, little yummies. Look up. Google little yummy. Mm. Little yummy was an 11-year-old murderer. Wow. And you look at his picture, you'll see the headshot of him, and he's like this. And he got murdered at 11 by a 14-year-old. Wow. Who's doing life now and a 16-year-old. That makes no sense. You, you blame the system? Where was his father? Yeah. It starts in the house. It starts in the home. And yeah, well, well, my father got locked up. Well, where was his father? Yeah. You know, that, 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 like I, I did talk about my three closest friends. And they did, you know, 15 to 25. One did 28, this and that. I was the only one of the three that had a father in my life, even though my parents were together, but I still had a father who was a gentle man and a good example, yeah. and they didn't. We can blame the system if we want, but they didn't lock any of us up at seven. Yeah, We were all doing enough to get locked up at 13. My parents sent me in another direction. They didn't have anybody to help them, and they kept doing what they was doing. It has been well said that the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. I think that saying, that notion, is eerily true in the case of Le Yummy, or as he was born, Robert Sanderford, nicknamed Yummy because he loved to eat cookies, chocolate chip cookies to be exact. It is quite the saga. It is quite the story. It is quite the tragedy. And in the first installment ever of a segment on my podcast, Changing the Narrative, a true crime segment, The Conscious Criminalist, I want to bring that story to you. How an 11-year-old boy from my city, city that I was born and raised in, became a murderer. The story of Le Yummy. Robert Yummy Sanford, born March 12, 1983, was an 11-year-old street gang member from Chicago, Illinois. Robert Sanford was murdered by fellow gang members in Chicago, and his event garnered national attention because of his age, resulting in him appearing on the cover of Time Magazine in September of 1994. Robert Sanford, or Lil Yummy, was the last child of nine born of Lorena Sanford, who had over 30 arrests while prostituting. Many of these arrests were drug-related. Due to his mother's history, Robert 
Lil Yummy Sanifer was taken from his mother. When Robert was taken away from his mother and given to his grandmother, Janie Fields, the juvenile court concluded that her prognosis as a caregiver wasn't much more promising. The psychiatric report described Fields as very controlling and domineering. Robert Yummy Sanford was physically abused from the time he was an infant. Before he was three years old, Sanford was already known to the Department of Children and Family Services. It was alleged that Sanford had cigarette burns on his arms and neck, as well as linen and bruising consistent with physical beatings. Many in the neighborhood where Robert lived had much to say about him. In the Times article about Robert, people said that he was a bully and that he smelled and he was of a different breed. Others recall a sweeter side. I just wanted to know what you think, what kind of guy he was. Hey man, he was a little kid. He was a kid? Yeah. When you see him, how old was he? He was 11. 11. Yeah. What was he like, like when he was a little, little kid? He was a sweet little kid. He wasn't violent. And he wasn't bad. The way they got it, the way they talking about now, that's not true. It's not true. Like when you say... Every time somebody says something, they change it around. He was this and he was that, and I know that he was not. Well, what was he like then? In, I, in other words, when he grew, when he was growing up, like, did he have a sense of humor? Yes, he did. When you, how, how did you find out that he, your nephew, was killed? What do you mean? How I found out? Well, he did, was you, did you get a phone call? No, they just brought the picture here. If I was to see this young man on the street, I've never seen him, right? What, what would I see? What did he look like? Was he a tall fellow? Was he no, short? he was this short. He was very short. To be his age, he was real short. Was he a bright fellow? Was he a smart guy? Yeah, he was very bright and very smart. He can draw, he can read, he can write. What kind of food did he like? I mean, was he... Oh, uh, he loved food, gyros. You know, he, he ate a lot. When mama had barbecues, he ate that. He ate a lot. Because he loved cookies. Nickname was yummy because he loved cookies. Yeah. What was his favorite cookie? Chocolate chip. <laughs> Oreo. You know them chocolate chips in the blue bag? That's what he liked. What's your name? My name is Glory. Gloria. Gloria, did he have like, when he was growing up, did he have any heroes? Did he have any sports heroes? Did he well, he liked a lot of cars. He liked to fix on cars and stuff like that. Did he ever talk about what he wanted to be when he, when he was growing up? Not, not to my knowledge. Maybe to my mother, but not to my knowledge. His home with his grandmother was in a working class neighborhood, and the residents dealt with the growth of gangs in their neighborhood, one that Robert would join soon, the Black Disciples. The Black Disciples were prominent in Chicago at the time, and several thousand or so gang members in Chicago were spread out across separate fiefdoms or territories led by men called ministers, who were usually in their 30s and 40s, who were always aiming to recruit children. Robert was known for bullying and stealing money from children and the community in the Chicago neighborhood of Roseland. He liked luxury cars and remarkably was able to drive them despite his small size. Many of his 23 felonies and five misdemeanors were committed in the course of running errands for street gangs. The penal system had no way to keep him out of trouble, and the courts were helpless to lock him away because he was too young for the juvenile detention system and too dangerous to be placed with children his age. Robert averaged a felony a month for the last year, 
and the half of his life. On August 20th, 1994, Robert was ordered to do a favor for his gang. He opened fire several times with a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, striking several young people. Robert quickly fled the scene. Among the victims was a 14-year-old named Siobhan Dean, who was hit by a stray bullet and later died from her gunshot wounds. The tragic shooting made national headlines. The nation was shocked by the brutality of the crime and the fact that the alleged perpetrator was an 11-year-old boy. You knew Siobhan, yeah? She's my niece. She's your niece? Uh-huh. What's your name, man? Ida Falls. What was she like? What was Siobhan like? She was a very cheerful young lady. Beautiful, outgoing. She was a good girl. Real good girl. Full of life and she loved to come outside and play. She loved to do hair. You know, she was beginning to start doing hair. And she loved to see beauty. She liked the lots of beauty, beautiful things. She wasn't a bad girl. Somebody's daughter is laying down here hurt. So, you know, I don't care who child is, I want to help. So I ran out the back door and ran right here. And I still didn't know it was my niece laying down there. And so my brother, he ran out the door and he, he, he ran right there. And then he, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he said he knew it was his daughter. I'm pretty sure that my brother knew what she had on, her clothing. So he ran and he looked at her and he put his hand on her and felt her pus. So he said, she still have a pus. So he said, call the police. The police were there so quick. I mean, they was here on the arrival. And so um, the police, they came and put white gloves on and they felt my niece, you know. But I knew, you know, she wasn't going to make it. The Chicago police began a manhunt for Robert, and according to Sergeant Palmer of the Chicago Police Department at that time, Robert's actions were a gang initiation gone wrong. Robert spent the last three days of his life on the run. Gang members shuffled him between safe houses and abandoned buildings as the police vigorously scanned the neighborhood looking for the shooter. Robert was terrified for his life. He didn't understand why the police were after him and his grandmother was worried about his safety and called him on the payphone to ask about his whereabouts. And he would answer crying and asking his grandmother if he could come back home. Robert managed to find his way back to his neighborhood and to his neighbor's house. Robert was visibly frightened, asked his neighbor if he could call his grandmother so he could turn himself in. He asked if they could say a prayer together. The neighbor went to go make the call and when she came back he was gone. The police can only guess what happened next. On August 31st, while hiding at a home of a neighbor, Robert was met by brothers Craig and Derek Hardaway, ages 16 and 14, fellow members of the Black Disciples. Robert was reportedly told that he was being taken to his safe location and ordered into a waiting car. Instead, he was brought to a railroad underpass at East 108th Street and Dolphin Avenue and was told to get on his knees. While on his knees, he was shot twice in the back of the head by the Hardaway brothers. About a year. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What was he like? Bad. Uh, he bad? 
Like when you say bad, what do you mean? Fighting still, breaking the people out. I think you should have asked Yeah? Shut up! What, what Come on, open up that door. Did you ever see like the police coming to us house? Every other day. Every other day the police were coming to us house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you like, when you found out that he was, he was uh, killed, right? What did you think? Um, I mean, it shocked me. He shouldn't have got killed like that. I mean, he didn't have to die the way he was killed, but that's the life you live. That's what happened. All of you children that are standing here, looking down, take a good look. And I want you to say within your heart that you'll never end up like Robin. Okay? Cry if you will. Make up your mind that you will never let your life end in tragedy like this. He was murdered by fellow gang members because they were afraid of him telling the Chicago police about the Black Gangster Disciples operations around his neighborhood and on the Chicago North Side. Hundreds of people attended his funeral, and the story was shared by Time Magazine to the rest of the nation, showing how gruesome gang activity is and how even an 11 year old child can become a killer. Robert Luyami Sanifer died August 31st, 1994. In retrospect, many of us will have different assessments and judgments about the case of Luyami and the two brothers, the Hardway brothers that killed him and that are still in prison to this day. But we must ask bigger questions we must ask deeper questions we must ask more poignant questions we must analyze this in a different i think in a different way the point of me doing these true crime stories on my podcast on this podcast changing the narrative is simply to be conscious about it what can we learn socially culturally as a people and as a country from these tragic horrible events Events that oftentimes involve people who aren't deemed by society insane. Luyami, the Hardaway brothers, that community in my city, my hometown, Chicago, dealt with something that we still today are dealing with. That is the deconstruction, the breakdown of morality and that is only occurring because of the breakdown of the family Denzel Washington was correct when prompted by the interviewer to say it starts in the home first they weren't coming for Liyami when he was seven eight nine five four three two or one they only came for him when he sought comfort, love, acceptance, or whatever his justification in his little 11-year-old brain was in gang life. 
What is it about that? Why is it so prevalent? And as it was then in the 90s, it is now with young people still being killed either in the crossfire of gang violence and gang wars in many cities of, the, of this country, particularly in Chicago, or being directly involved in these things. I think it's the breakdown, the outright demonization of the nuclear family. I want to look at something, an op-ed that I think explains this pretty well, written by Delano Squires. He says, black men in, any, in my generation must lead the battle against Red Fems, BLM, and the groups out to destroy the nuclear family. The deconstruction of the nuclear family, really beginning in the 60s, because of the welfare state, is sadly what destroyed and led to the little yummies of the world. Let's read this. America's centuries long battle to become a more perfect union has devolved into a war on the, on the marital union. Nowhere has the fight against marriage and the nuclear family been more intense than among black men, women, and their children. This war is not being waged by racists in white hoods. This type of fight would spark a strong communal response. No, soldiers of dismantling the black family wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts, call themselves radical feminists and allies, teach at prestigious universities, and often share the pigmentation of the people they want to emancipate from the patriarchy. Worse, these soldiers claim they are pro-family. He goes on to say, Brittany Cooper, the self-described Professor Cronk, is a senior strategist in this unholy war. She's a radical black feminist and associate professor at Rutgers University, a featured contributor at MSNBC, and a favorite guest or host, Joy Reid. This week, Professor Cronk has been on the front lines of the abortion debate. In an appearance on Mark Lamont Hill's show, Cooper argued that the right to abortion is essential to building strong black families. Hear what, the, hear what people like Professor Crunker, was hear what they're saying. Killing that thing, growing inside of your womb. I just, I just want to, to lay out her argument. I'm not making a judgment about it. Killing that thing that is growing inside of your womb is conducive to building strong, strong black families. Via Twitter, I asked Professor Crunk how someone who is pro-abortion could also describe herself as pro-family. Her response captured the daddy doctrine guiding the left's attack plan for the past 60 years, Squires says. Quote, we don't need traditional nuclear families for black thriving, she replied. Professor Cooper said out loud what the black community has been living for the past half century. And her views are consistent with her influential black co-conspirators in politics, media, and the entertainment industry. Turncoats are the intellectual backbone of, of the war on the black family. The war to detach black Americans from God's design for men, women, and their children. They have been incredibly effective. The number of American children born to unmarried parents has increased significantly in the past 50 years. Nowhere has this culture shift been more pronounced than within black families. About 25% of black children were born to unmarried parents in 1965. We're talking about how we got to the tragic 
crime story, the tragic story, the tragic saga of Lil Yummy. About 25% of black children were born to unmarried parents in 1965, the fourth of black children, which is too high already. It reached 50% by 1975 and has been over 70% since 1995. Studies show that social, emotional, and educational outcomes for children are best when they are raised by their married biological parents in low-conflict relationships compared to children raised in, in other family arrangements. Children who are raised by their married parents achieve higher levels of education and have lower levels of teen pregnancy, criminal activity, and behavioral problems. Could it be that Lil Yummy could have been prevented from living the life he lived? And to, so to the Hardaway brothers, have they had strong, stable families? Could that be the case? He goes on to say, Democrats and the subversive black activists and intellectuals who support them may deny this, but it doesn't change the facts. Fighting this ideology requires radical recognition of priorities and recognition of the people and strategy being used to diminish the necessity of God's marriage covenant. Step one will involve a mindset shift. We can no longer be more consumed with the history and society of our ancestors, our ancestors endured, than with the future and society of our descendants and what they will inherit. I'm hoping children's I'm hoping children's children will read the the 2119 project, a mashup of two of the most controversial documents of their times. The Monaghan report that focused on the state of the black family in the 1960s and the 1619 project that situates chattel slavery as this nation's most central institution. The 2119 project will chronicle how my generation fought to rebuild the family structure that Cooper and the other subversive actors spent generations trying to destroy. And he goes on and he goes on and he goes on. And he does something, I think, that is important. I want to read it to you. Speaking of how we got to Liyami, quickly. He did another op-ed and he said, the Richard Snip letter proves the assault of the black mind and man has been decades in the making. He talks about he recently came ac across a man named Richard Snip, assuming the name was a pseudonym, although um, he occasionally referred to himself as Dick in other letters. Mr. Snip's letters appears to be written to political officials who wanted to know how to reach influence and ultimately control the minds of black voters. The letter sounds a lot like a cross between the the mythical Willie Lynch letter and how to make a slave and the C.S. letters, the C.S. Lewis screw tape letters, which were fictional instructions from a demon on how to lead man to damnation. He goes on, he goes on, he talks about it, but he says this, the first rule you must understand always and in everything, keep them fixated black people, black America on race. The second rule is equally straightforward. Teach them to make white people the center of their world. We want them to respond to our views, our opinions, values, and actions while they ignore their own. The goal of the first two rules is to use their pain against them. They know that, quote, race is a fiction. Some of their scholars even admit as much when they call it a social construct. This fiction is the central part of their identity since they were stripped of their ethnic heritage through enslavement. 
It continued to be the central part of their identity when they were assigned second-class citizenship during Jim Crow. Use that, he says. Use that history against them. Once you make them see themselves as Negro first, even ahead of being human, you can get down to business. He goes on to make this interesting note, and I think it's quite interesting. We're talking about how we get to a little yummy, a Robert Sanford, an 11-year-old killer. How we get to a Craig Hardaway and the Hardaway brothers. The first place to attack is the family. Start by pitting the men and women against each other. Teach them that the natural family unit should not be promoted in public and that marriage is part of, quote, white cultural norms. Fill their women's heads with the same feminist propaganda ours have been indulging in for time. Tell them they are fighting oppression on two fronts, men like us in the workplace and their own husbands in the home. Teach men if they are oppressors as well. Make their views on children and families sound more like the works of Gloria Steinem than Malcolm X. If we conceive them to mimic their women who say unwanted babies are a burden, they'll come to see killing them as freedom and attempts to stop it as bondage. That's exactly what we want. Convince their women that the government is just as suitable as a father, as suitable as their men. When you do that, men will start to withdraw. They'll realize that they are no longer responsible for their children and for the children they father. That is good. That one change alone will provide a tremendous return on our investment. Convince them that quote, conservatism is really a, a, code for wor a code word for racism and conservatives are really closeted Klansmen. Dismiss, dismiss any bootstrap talk as conservatives so they can, so they can reject it. Convince them that they have no boots and that their feet don't even work. That will make them easier to carry. That is what we all want. We want them to be sustained by the strength of our hands, not their own. And he goes on, he goes on, he talks about many different things. Speaking about how we got to Layami. Here's his ending. Here's his, here's his final crescendo of the snip letter. In closing. Remember the cardinal rule, always and in everything, always and in everything, keep them fixated on race. Never let them know that these ideas started in the very institutions they clamor to send their children to. Always make them think this is propaganda from the Klan, not the Ivy League. Do this long enough, and even when we all leave for the moon, they'll claim that racism is what's holding them back. Well. At least the ones who state will. Half will follow us because they want to be wherever we are. In control. Dick or Richard. Snip. It's a bit abstract. It's a bit. Ambiguous. But the point I think is the same. I do this segment, this podcast, Changing the Narrative, to do just that, change the narrative. To look at true crime stories in a conscious way, hence being the conscious criminalist. And what we can glean from those stories 
and what we need to gather. I targeted this to the black community as probably a wake-up call. No, as a wake-up call, as a rallying call to move beyond the oppression and the victimhood, to prevent future little yummies and to heal past ones. That's the purpose of this sad, sad story. You may have someone that's growing up in conditions that are horrendous, family destroyed, family all over the place, dad not here, mama doing this. You may know them or you may be that person just like little yummy. The message to you if you're that person or to them, which you should preach to them day and night, is it's never too late. It's never too late. Too late for what? To be better, to do better. We cannot allow the nuclear family to be destroyed because if we allow the nuclear family to be destroyed and we become hyper fixated on things we can't control, we become hyper fixated on racism and racist and white supremacy as the academics and the Ivy League want us to. It is a it is a mass brainwashing and psychosis that prevents us from solving real solutions within our country and in our communities. I don't want to see I want to see as few if I want to see zero if humanly possible, but I know it's not humanly possible, but I want to see as few little yummies, proverbially speaking. As possible, I don't want that to be. I don't want to be able, I don't want to see or to have to say or see the signs. Uh, don't shoot, I want to grow up. We all seen the iconic signs. This is the story of Robert Yummy Sanifer. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in.